Welcome everybody to another session of Indica Conversations. And we have a very special guest today. We'll talk about her shortly. Um, we started this series after we were uh, in this lockdown situation. And uh, we started thinking, what should we do? So Ram and uh, Nishant and I got together and came up with the idea that we should start hosting these webinars. And I think this is fourth or fifth of our series. Um, so welcome, I want to welcome you all. Uh, as we do always, uh, we'll start with prayer. Ano bhadraha kratavo May auspicious thoughts come to us from all over the world. My name is Avatans Kumar, and I am the head of uh, Indica, president, uh, which is also the subsidiary of Indica Academy in India. And uh, with me, I have Nishant Limbachia. Nishant. Introduce yourself, please. Namaste, uh, Nishant Imbachia from Chicago uh, area. And I have also Ram. Ram, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, this is uh, Ram here. Uh, I'm also one of the coordinators for Indica Academy in Chicago. So Ram and Nishant are my co-hosts today. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> quick word about Indica. We are a non-traditional university for traditional knowledge. We seek to build global renaissance based on Indic civilizational thought. We are pursuing multi-dimensional strategy across time, space, and cause by establishing centers of excellence, transforming intellectuals, and building ecosystems. We are a 501c3 not-for-profit organization here in the US and all contributions made to Indica are tax deductible. Please visit us on our website that is www.indicacademy.org. Explore, navigate our activities, platforms and initiatives. Please follow us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Indic Academy. Before we bring in our guest today, we have a message from our founder, Sri Harikiran Vadlamani ji. Uh, let me try to play this for you. I think Janet Arden of New Zealand Prime Minister spoke about her achievements of the government for in two minutes she gave away and that went viral. Uh, so Indic Academy just completed five minutes, five, five years, and I've got five minutes to talk about it. So I'm going to talk very rapidly. I'm just going to stay my, uh, share my screen and hopefully we'll cover something for you to get a sense of. Okay, so Indic Academy is um, a non-traditional university for traditional knowledge. Our purpose is to bring about a global Indic Renaissance that is based on Indic and indigenous knowledge systems. We pursue a multi-dimensional strategy, a strategy that seeks to build centers of excellence, seeks to transform intellectuals and build an ecosystem. 
we think about a strategy on three dimensions. I think about I'm living in a cube in these three dimensions, wherein we seek to preserve, protect, and promote our indigenous knowledge systems. We took our thinking is near term, medium term, and long term. And we look at the dimensions of intellectual, cultural, and spiritual. That's the broader framework. Insofar as centers of excellence are concerned, we have set up three centers of excellence. One is an intergurukula university center. You have heard of inter-university centers. This is the intergurukula university center, wherein we are bringing about and building a bridge between four components, which is the traditional Shastric study, Indic knowledge systems, Indology, and fusing the Western and Eastern uh, knowledge systems so that it is on a civilization basis. So that is our ambition. We have um, acquired land in Hyderabad and we are seeking to build a multidisciplinary Gurukul along with this inter-university center. This we will be starting it this year. The strategy for the IGUC is to look at research partnerships with individuals as well as institutions. We have signed up as well as announced research fellowships on our own. Develop courses and also develop centers. So we are right now in discussions with Baroda University as well as MIT University to set up centers in their campus. We hope to achieve scale through this strategy of research partnerships and developing courses and developing centers at various uh, universities. We have a center for Indic writers. We, see, we, we seek to nurture uh, uh, writers. We seek to publish writers and promote writers. And you know, over the last... Uh, Three years, we have emerged as the largest platform to promote books. We have done more than 160 book launches. We are into publications and they're also into training. This month alone, we train more than 20 people in writing. So these are the aspects of our IGUC center, uh, writing center. We also have set up a center for soft power. The center for soft power looks at analysis, advocacy, and awareness. We have a platform called Soft Power Mag and advocacy. We have set up a platform called NICE, wherein we are seeking to uh, nurture cultural entrepreneurship. We also have a research division to see how our culture is making a global impact. This is as far as the centers of excellence is concerned. We are now shortly starting two more centers, one center for sustainability, wherein we are looking at sustainability across agriculture. We are looking at sustainability in uh, uh, crafts and uh, Ayurveda and look at the indigenous knowledge systems, go to the field and do research there. We're also setting up a center for inner transformation or Center for Spirituality, wherein we're looking at three kinds of courses. One course is a course to make, make, make yoga charyas, which is from Samskritam to Sutras, from Kirtans, Bhajans, Bhajans, Chantings, and Yoga Sutras and Upanishads. So all that we overlaid on a typical 500-hour asana course. We're also looking at executive coaching as a part of this, uh, and also to, uh, to produce gurus in the traditional Vedantic system. This is what these are the five centers that uh, we have. We are also uh, we have a, a strategy of transforming intellectuals and we what we call as a strategy of self selfless and self. When we talk about self with a smaller self, we talk about helping a person discover his, uh, his swadharma and nurturing that selfless is to make him think and invest in him to work on uh, uh, social entrepreneurship. And self with a capital S is to make him help him discover his true self. That is our strategy for transforming intellectuals at a broader level. More specifically, we look at courses, we conduct courses, we have offer research fellowships. We have more than 
80 research fellowships that we are in the process of granting. We have already granted 20. We are public, we are in publications. We have published 14 books. We are uh, conduct events. We have held 496 events as of 31st of March in the last four years. In this year alone, again, we've started, we've done about eight events. And we have also developed platforms wherein individuals, we nurture them as entrepreneurs. We have Indic Book Club, which is a platform being nurtured by, uh, nurtured with uh, uh, Abhinav Agarwal, wherein we are promoting books. We have uh, distributed more than 9,000 books through this platform. We have Indic Today, which is, which is being run by Yogni Desh Pandey. She is the editor. And that's a, that's a platform for serious uh, and semi-serious uh, 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 knowledge uh, in, in Shastra's Indic knowledge systems and Indology. We have Indica Pictures, which is a platform for short uh, videos being uh, done by Gayatri Ayer. We have Indica Yoga being uh, run by Vinay Chandra. We have Indica Moksha being uh, uh, run by uh, Nitin Sridhar, which is a platform, which is the largest platform. We have more than 10,000 videos on uh, Vedanta. We are doing a global festival of uh, Adi Shankaracharya for 30 days now. We have Aijan Plus, which is uh, uh, which is uh, run by uh, Saumya Agrawal, which is a joint venture with her, which is targeted at children uh, up to high school. And over the last two years, we have made several interventions. And we have now set up NICE, which I mentioned earlier, which is a network of Indian cultural enterprises, which is going to be the NASCOM or the CIA of culture. Uh, Arunima Gupta is uh, heading that. And Software, Software Mag is, uh, is run by Vijayalakshmi, uh, Vijay Kumar and these are all the platforms that we have. Insofar as the ecosystem, we are consciously trying to build an ecosystem. The ecosystem we are trying to build, wherein we don't have a view, we only are the infrastructure creators. Any ecosystem has two components. There's a living component. There's a non-living component. We are trying to invest in the non-living part. We don't have any views. We, we are diverse and inclusive and we welcome all views. And the way we look at uh, building this infra, uh, uh, ecosystem is through a connect, cooperate, and collaborate strategy with connections. We help uh, smaller people, smaller networks to form. We have city networks. We have networks in 30 cities. Over the last five years, we've developed these networks. We have domain-wise networks. Uh, networks is focused on uh, specific domains. And that's how we are trying to create this ecosystem of helping people connect each other. We have a corporate strategy wherein we give grants. We have emerged as the largest grant-giving organization in this space. We give grants for events, publications, research and fellowships, travel, and scholarships. We also, also encourage collaborations. We collaborate with other institutions. Like I mentioned about research, we collaborate for finance, we collaborate for technical, we collaborate for infrastructure. So that's our collaborative strategy. This is the overall uh, basis. The kind of events that we have uh, held are range from Vakirta Sadas to retreats, to workshops, conferences, walks, uh, uh, screenings, uh, book launches, Indic talks. That's broadly uh, uh, what we do. Uh, I, I just take one more minute. We are, the several highlights and several uh, things that we have uh, achieved and which we are proud of. Uh, in, in just in terms of uh, uh, when we look back in the last five years. But going forward, version IA, uh, what is IA 2.0? IA 2.0 is going to do two things. One is work with professors like Balu in a deeper and more meaningful manner and see how they can make a greater impact. So there's one aspect of that that's going to be very, very, and this year we are, we are, we are working with nine uh, such uh, uh, venerable scholars and looking at how to build the, their legacies. That's one very important thing that uh, I'm, I'm very deeply engaged with. 
and then there's another aspect of building a gurukul here multidisciplinary gurukul here and the inter university center that's the second version and the third version is to look at scale and how we can approach scale we just gave 100 scholarships for publishing um, for for first time authors so how do we get scale and 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 reach out to a larger people so this 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 thing between richness and reach and that's what we are trying to do and i hope my five minutes is over thank you so much Wow. All right. So with that, um, I would like to now introduce our uh, speaker today. Uh, we have for that Professor Minakshi Jainji. Professor Minakshi Jain is Senior Fellow of Indian Council of Social, Indian Council of Social Science Research. She is former fellow of the Nehru Memorial Museum and Library. She's former associate professor of history, Gargi College, University of Delhi. In 2020, Professor Mukherjee, uh, Professor Jain was awarded Padma Shri by the government of India. That is the fourth highest national honor. Her areas of research include cultural and religious developments in medieval and early modern India. Her recent publications include Flight of Deities and Rebirth of Temples, 2019. The Battle for Rama, Case for a Temple at Ayodhya in 2017. Sati, Evangelicals, Baptist, Missionaries and Changing Colonial Discourse, that was in 2016. Rama and Ayodhya in 2013. The India They Saw, Foreign Accounts of India from 8th to mid 19th century, three volumes that came out in 2011, Parallel Pathways 2010. And today, um, Professor Minakshi Jain will be talking about a foreign traveler's account, the history, what they saw. And uh, Professor Jain, welcome to our webinar. Hello, everyone. Namaskar and good evening, Indian time. Thank you, Indic Academy. Thank you, Aptans and Shefali Vedya for organizing this. And thank you all for taking time out to participate. The topic of today's interaction is Indian history through the eyes of foreign travelers. This is a very, very important and perhaps neglected area of research. I collected a lot of this material several years ago when I prepared a three volume anthology on foreign accounts of India. And some of it I've collected recently in the course of my current research, which I hope will be published end 21 or early 2022. Uh, for the sake of convenience, I'll divide my talk into three sections. In the first section, I will discuss the accounts written in ancient times on ancient India. In the second section, I will discuss medieval accounts on India. And in the third period, colonial accounts, when a substantial part of the Indian subcontinent was under British control. I am uh, very conscious that the material is voluminous and I will not be able to do 
full justice to it. So I'll just present snippets of what I think are some of the most interesting accounts that we have. I'll begin with the ancient period. And the first accounts that we have are of Greeks. You're all aware of Alexander. <clears throat> he was a student of Aristotle, the philosopher Aristotle. And he was among the greatest uh, conquerors in the ancient world. Alexander was very conscious that he was creating a place for himself in history. So when he went on his conquests, he was accompanied by an entourage that included scientists, scholars, who could record his major conquests and achievements. So when Alexander came to India, uh, the first account that we have is that he met a group of people whom Greek scholars called gymnosophists. Now, this is a very famous encounter of Alexander with this group of people, and it is recorded in many Greek accounts of the medieval ancient period. Now, who were these gymnosophists? The gymnosophists were naked ascetics or naked philosophers, and we know what an important place they occupied in the cultural and civilizational scene of India over the millennia. Now, what explains Alexander's interaction with the gymnosophists? It is very interesting that he suspects that the gymnosophists have instigated an Indian prince to revolt against Alexander's army. This is really very amazing that in 326, a group of 10 gymnosophists are encouraging an Indian prince to revolt against an invading army. And when Alexander's interaction with them is also very interesting, Alexander asked the leader, why did you provoke this Indian prince? And the leader says, we wanted him to live nobly and die nobly. The other interactions that uh, Alexander has with them are recorded by Plutarch and many other historians of that time and a little later. Uh, then apart from that, we have uh, some accounts which suggest that when Alexander arrived in India, he actually did not know where he was. He thought he was in Upper Egypt and that he would eventually come to the Nile and the Mediterranean. And then he would be able to go back home. But in Punjab, he met people who knew otherwise. So he asked them, to give him an account of the country as they, as they knew it. And the accounts that Indians gave of the geographical layout of India has been preserved in the writings of Strabo, 
and other historians. If we study those accounts, it's amazing how well acquainted Indians were with the layout of this vast subcontinent so many centuries before the common era. So that is one other very interesting uh, information that I got. And the third is a Roman historian, uh, Quintinus Curtius. Now he wrote, he wrote histories of Alexander the Great. And what he writes about India, he writes about King Porus. King Porus' encounter with Alexander is well recorded and is part of the lore, legends of India. So according to this Roman historian, when the army of Porus was going to confront Alexander, they carried an image of Krishna before them because that was regarded as the greatest motivator to compel the student, uh, soldiers to fight bravely. So this is important for two reasons. First of all, it refers to image, murti, we think, and it refers to Lord Krishna. So these three accounts, according to me, are of exceptional value because we don't hear Indian voices in this period. By that I mean that no Indian account is there which mentions Alexander. No Indian account mentions Alexander. So does it mean that the entry of Alexander into India was regarded as a non-event? It's a question of perspective, but an interesting indication in any case. The next important account that we have of India in the ancient period is also by a Greek. His name is Megasthenes. He was the ambassador, Greek ambassador to the court of the Indian king Chandragupta Maurya. Megasthenes lived in India uh, between 302 and 288 BC. His work, Indica, is unfortunately lost, <clears throat> but excerpts of his writings of India have survived in the accounts of several Greek historians who wrote soon after Megasthenes. And Megasthenes' account, I'll just mention three things that he says which are of interest to me. First, he says that Mathura and Gokul were the strongholds of Krishna's followers. So this is another reference that we get to Krishna in the ancient period, early reference. Then he says that one branch of this family ruling in Mathura went all the way to the deep south and established a kingdom the Pandya kingdom. So this raises the possibility of people and migration of people from the north to the south and the setting up of kingdoms 
in the deep south. Third, Megasthenes gives us the most comprehensive account of the Indian social order. And he says that Indian society was divided into seven groups. At the top of the list were the sophists or wise men. They were the least numerous, but the most revered and honored. The most populous class was the class of farmers. And after that came the soldiers. The other groups that he mentioned were herders, artisans, shopkeepers, overseers who supervised everything in the country and the seventh class who deliberated with the king on public matters. So these are two very important early accounts. But for me personally, the third account is the most important. It is by a person named Heliodorus. Heliodorus was the Greek ambassador to an Indian king. And he came to the ancient city of Vidisha. And there he erected a column which is still standing in its original place. The column was topped by an image of Garud, and so it is called Garud Dwaj. That column has an inscription which can still be seen over there. That inscription is in two parts. In the first part, he describes who he is, who is the king whom he is representing, and it says that I'm erecting this column in honor of Dev Dev, the god of gods, Vasudev. So this is in second century BC that a person is coming from Takshila and erecting a column in honor of Vasudev, Dev Dev, also known as Krishna. And what is most surprising, the inscription part two. Part two of the inscription has a verse which is verbatim the same as three, a verse in the three parv of the Mahabharat. So what does it mean? Does it mean that Heliodorus in the second century BC in tech, coming from Takshila to India knew of the Mahabharat? The answer to this question is found in the Mahabharat itself. The Mahabharat says that the composer of the Mahabharat, Vyas, ordered that the Mahabharat should be first recited in Takshila. It was recited in Takshila and many people who were there in that assembly heard it and took it to, their, to other parts of the country. So here, is a unique instance of an inscription matching what is said in the Mahabharata. And again, the antiquity, second century BC, and it talks about Krishna is erecting a column
column for Krishna and it's still standing and it again talks about the antiquity of certain forms of worship and certain kinds of worship. Uh, archaeologists have later uh, in the 19th and 20th century, they have excavated around that column and they have found that it was a very important center of the worship of Vasudev and they have found parts of the remains of a temple. So this uh, antiquity of Krishna, we have got from two sources. One is the sources that came with the Greeks and the other is the epigraphic evidence by Heliodorus. This is perhaps the most important epigraphic evidence or the epigraphic evidence, let me, in the history of uh, Krishna worship. Then I would uh, just like to say that in the ancient period, parts of northern and northwestern India were ruled by foreign dynasties. They included the Greeks, the Shakas, the Kushans. And I just want to mention one point that none of these people, uh, we don't know what was their religious or belief systems before they came to India. But in India, we find that they all become patrons of uh, Buddhism or some uh, tradition that was indigenous to this country. And I would like to mention one Greek ruler, Menander was his name. And he, I'm mentioning because he he's described in his coins as a protector or follower of dharma and a dharm chakra is there on his coins. So this invocation of the word dharma by the Indo-Greek ruler Menander is very interesting. Now the other reason that I want to mention Menander is that he is supposed to have engaged in a long series of conversations with a leading Buddhist teacher, Nagasen. And he asked him many questions. And after the interaction was over, he saw the importance of Buddhism. That is what is said. And these conversations of his are recorded in a book called Milinda Pano, the questions of King Melinda. So this is not exactly a foreign source on India, but it does tell us something about an Indo-Greek ruler who ruled over parts of Northern India. Interestingly, at the Buddhist uh, site of Bharut, famous Buddhist site in Central India, there is a frieze of a Greek and uh, he's in Greek dress. And it is speculated that it is a representation of this Greek King Menander. In Sanchi, uh, we have depicted on the gate, one of the gates, Greek musicians and Greek devotees. And in Karle, we have the Karle caves in which we have inscriptions of many Greeks 
making donations. So these are some very interesting accounts that we get from the ancient period by foreigners and which helps us to get some idea of the cultural history of this subcontinent. Now, after that, I want to mention uh, several Chinese who visited India. They came in large numbers because they wanted to visit Buddhist sites and to collect Buddhist texts. A lot of the inscriptions of the Chinese you can find in Bodh Gaya, but I want to uh, refer to three Chinese travelers. They are well known and every scholar of ancient history has used their works. So they are Fahim, Yun Sang and Itzing. Fahim came in the fifth century. He visited Lumbini, the birthplace of Buddha, and he described Takshila, Patliputra, Mathura, and Kanoj. The next important Chinese traveler was Hyun Sang, who came when the great King Harsha was ruling over North India. Uh, his account is very valuable. But I want to mention two things that Hyun Sang wrote, which are of great interest. He writes that at Prayag, there was a confluence of pilgrims at the, there was a congregation of pilgrims at the confluence of rivers. So are we to understand that this is a reference to Kumbh? That's very interesting. And second thing is that Yuen Sang provides us with a detailed account of the Sun Temple in Multan. This Sun Temple was revered all over the ancient uh, country, in the, in the, all over ancient India for its worship, for its image of the Sun God and people used to come from all over the country to this temple. Now, Yun Sang describes the image, the gold image, and he also describes the temple. This is the last eyewitness account that we have of the Sun Temple before it was destroyed in the subsequent centuries by the, when the Arab and Turkish invasions began. And the third account, is of Nalan, uh, of Itzing, who was a student at Nalanda University. These accounts are very, very valuable because they tell us about political, economic, cultural activities and the state of these activities in the Indian subcontinent from the fifth to the seventh century. A large number of pilgrims, foreign travelers, Chinese travelers also visited the South. They have also provided very, very valuable information, which I cannot go into. Uh, now I would like to move on to the second part of my talk, and that is the medieval period. After the Chinese travelers, a new era begins in Indian history. 
And in the seventh century, we have the birth of Islam. And within a hundred years, the Arabs had conquered Iran, Iraq, Syria, Egypt. And they had in 711 reached the Iberian Peninsula. The next year, that is 712, they entered Sindh with its capital at Multan. So now they controlled the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean routes, and they controlled all the maritime and sea routes to India. So India's link with Europe was blocked and was resumed many centuries later when Vasco da Gama found a new route to India. So the early travelers to India in this period were mainly Arab geographers, geographers, traders, and merchants. Among the earliest was the merchant Suleiman, who wrote around 851 AD. Now these early Arab travelers to India, they communicated knowledge of Indian numerals, mathematics, philosophy, logic, military science, medicine, astrology, astronomy to the outside world. And at this time, they regarded India as a source of wisdom. In fact, Masudi, one of the early Arab travelers, said that hikmah or wisdom came from India. This view of India, unfortunately, undergoes a change in the 10th, 11th century when we find a more critical uh, view of India becoming the dominant view. Now the early Arab travelers, when they came to India, they were struck by the military might and the wealth of the Indian kingdoms. And they particularly mentioned the kingdom of the Palas in Bengal, the Gurja Pratiharas in central India, North and Central India, and the Rashtrakutas in the Deccan. Now, according to the Arab accounts, the Pala ruler possessed the largest armed force in the country, and he was accompanied by as many as 50,000 elephants. We don't know uh, how accurate this is, but this is what they wrote. And he said that he had 10 to 15,000 washermen in his army. And they said the Pala, in the Pala kingdom, a cloth was woven that was so fine that it could pass through a ring. Then they wrote about the Gurja Pratiharas and they described them as enemies of Islam par excellence. They said that they possessed a cavalry which no other Indian king could rival. And then they mentioned the Rashtrakutas in the Deccan, they regard them as the greatest kings of Al-Hind and the fourth greatest rulers in the world. And just one or two uh, things that I want to mention, what they write about women. 
this is Abu Zaidul Hassan of Sira. Sira, he writes in 950 that uh, the royal women in India were not veiled. They did not cover their face. Most Indian princes, when they held court, allowed their women to be seen by men who attended it, whether they were natives or foreigners. And an account uh, preserved in the journal of the first voyage of Vasco de Gama records that women at Calicut, that is where he landed, wore many jewels of gold around their necks, numerous bracelets on their arms, and rings set with precious stones on their toes. Now, the greatest account of India in the early 11th century was written by Al-Biruni. Al-Biruni was a contemporary of Mahmud Ghaznavi, who invaded India 60, 16 times. Al-Biruni was really interested in understanding Indian civilization and he made a most comprehensive, detailed study which encompassed philosophy, religion, economy, astrology. There was no facet of India that he did not try to understand or cover. And since I want to bring to you, to your notice, various kinds of insights that we get into aspects of Indian history and culture, I thought I would mention to you what he says about Indian writing. He says that in the South, there is a tree that is, each leaf is about one yard long. It bears fruits, but its leaves are used for writing. So this is uh, account that he gives of writing on tree leaves and another account of another tree in central and northern India that is also used for writing. This is the tooth tree. They say that he says that they oil and polish the leaves to make it smooth and then they use it for writing. So these are interesting uh, pieces that we get. Alvaruni also writes about Varna and Jati and he says there were always only four castes and he says whatever the different professions that the castes followed, they never lived in separate villages. They all lived in the same villages and towns. This is what he writes. And uh, I thought since, uh, you know, I've done a study on the fate of temples in the medieval period, I thought I would bring to your notice that he writes, he writes about many uh, sacred cities and he also writes about the temple of Masharda in Kashmir, that is now in Pioki. And another account of the same period is of Gardizi. He was an Arab traveler of the 10th century. And what I found interesting in his account was his description of worship at Ujjain, the Mahakal temple at Ujjain. And that temple worship still continues at that site 
though that temple had a very turbulent history, uh, which we can discuss some other time. Now, in the medieval period, as far as political history was concerned, the most momentous development was the establishment of the Delhi Sultanate in 1206. This was the first time that Muslim rule was being established in Delhi. And uh, I don't want to get into the political history, uh, but I do want to mention one traveler who comes from Morocco. His name is Ibn Battuta. He comes in the time when Muhammad bin Tughlaq is the Sultan of Delhi, and he becomes a friend of Muhammad bin Tughlaq. But what I found very interesting about his account was that he gives us an account of Khajurao. The Khajurao temples, they're world famous, and we've all heard of them. And what he says is that the temples uh, have been desecrated, but there are yogis who are living over there and that place has not been deserted, though it has been desecrated and destroyed. Now this is, we've talked about North India. What was happening in the South? There were two very, very important dynasties. One is the Cholai dynasty, which we've all heard of. And the second is the Vijayanagar Empire. I want to say one thing about the Cholai dynasty. I want to draw your attention to a female ruler. Uh, I've not been able to find any foreign account of her, but it is so important. Her contribution to Indian history is so important that I thought I'll make a slight digression and mention her. Her name is Sembian Mahadevi. She was married to the Chola king. But he passed away when she was not yet 30. So her child was an infant. He could not ascend the throne. Uh, so uh, she lived for a very long time. She saw her nephews, grandnephews, and her son finally also become emperor. Why do we remember her today? Because it's a very rare case of a woman ruler who initiated such an important movement in Indian art and culture. She commissioned many temples. But what is most important is that she started what we know as Chola bronzes today. Each Chola bronze is a priceless work of art. And this tradition of Chola bronzes was started by her. And the Natraj, you know, we've heard of Simon Norton paying $1 million for a Natraj. This bronze Natrajes were also started by her. And there is a bronze portrait image of hers, a bronze statue of hers, which is now in the Freer Museum in Washington, DC. So it's a slight digression, but I thought that we should, uh, you know, cover as many aspects of our past as we can. Uh, then I come to the Vijayanagar Empire that was established in the early 14th century. It was established ostensibly to stop the halt of the armies from the north. 
the Sultanate armies, the armies of the Delhi Sultans from invading the South. Now, for our purposes, uh, we are very fortunate that so many foreigners came to Vijayanagar and left vivid accounts of the glory of that kingdom. And many of these foreign travelers even got audiences with the Vijayanagar kings. And they have written detailed accounts of their encounters in interviews with the king. Abdul Razak, for instance, he wrote about his meeting with the Vijayanagar king. The most copious accounts on Vijayanagar have been given by two Portuguese traders, Nunes and Pace. And they have given detailed accounts of the nine days Navratri or Dushara festival that used to be celebrated with all pomp and grandeur in the Vijayanagar kingdom. And they've written about the military might that, that would be on display. They've also written a lot about women in the Vijayanagar empire. They say that around 4,000 women uh, used to live in the palace of the king himself. They used to look after the accounts. They were wrestlers. They were his uh, security. They, uh, you know, apart from other activities, they were skilled in warfare. And he also says that uh, it was their duty to keep a record of what was happening in the kingdom while they were inside the palace and their accounts would be compared with those that, that came from outside. So they had to keep tabs on what was happening in the kingdom. So they were judges, women were judges, bailiffs and watchmen who every night guarded the palace. They were all women. And there is, since we're talking about women, uh, we have a very, a lot of interesting accounts of women in the South uh, because it was a matrilineal system. So we have very interesting accounts of a little later period of women rulers in the South. And there is an Italian nobleman who came, Petra della Vella, and he wrote about his encounter and experiences of women who were rulers of small villages, cluster of villages. And what he writes, that there was no difference in their dress from that of their subjects. They dressed the same way. They were hands-on rulers. If a work had to be done on the farm, they would go themselves and supervise it. And he writes in very glowing terms about the sagacity. There was no distance between the ruler and the ruled. And uh, how... Uh, the very, very flattering accounts that we have, uh, particularly by this Italian nobleman, Petra della Vella. Now, uh, we also have accounts of, uh, you know, descriptions by the Portuguese of caves like the Elephanta Caves. And they're really wondering whether this could have been the work of a human being. I mean, they were so intricately carved and they used to wonder how was it possible for a human being to create this. So we have beautiful eyewitness accounts of the caves 
which they saw because that is the route from which they came. Uh, we have French travelers coming at this time. Tavernier. Tavernier uh, wrote a very, very detailed, comprehensive account of the state of Indian economy, Indian industry, India, India trade. And what I found most interesting was his account of the diamond trade in Golconda. And he mentions how boys would be trained from the early age of 10 and how quick they were to learn their craft. Uh, there is another Italian I would like to mention, Manucci. Manucci uh, came to India when he was 17 years old. He wrote a three volume work on India. This is the most detailed account of the reigns of Empress Shah Jahan and Aurangzeb. And he met the great Maratha leader Shivaji many times. And he has left an account of those meetings of the with Shivaji. Now, uh, since my last work was titled Flight of Deities, and that in that work, I discussed what happened, what was the fate of temples in the medieval period when India experienced iconoclasm on a large scale. So since we're talking about foreign accounts, I would like to mention some of these accounts that were very useful for me and for us to reconstruct the fate of temples in the medieval period. Uh, the Sun Temple at Multan, I told you that Yuen Sang had, was the last eyewitness account of that temple. And then the fate of the image and that temple have been described in detail by Al-Baruni. I want to particularly mention what foreign accounts we have on Ayodhya. You are all aware that Ayodhya has been a very vexed and troublesome issue for the last so many years until it was finally resolved by the Supreme Court in 12, 2019. Now, it is interesting that two foreigners who came to India provided valuable eyewitness accounts. The first was an Englishman named William Finch. He came in 16045 and he lived in India for about four years. And in the course of his travels, he also went to Ayodhya. And he says that he refers to the place as Ram Court, Ram's Castle. And he says that pilgrims come and they take a dip in the nearby Saryu River. And there are people, priests, who write their names in their registers. And they take back black burnt rice, which they find at that site. This account, first eyewitness account of what happens, what was happening at Ayodhya, does not mention namaz being performed or the presence of Muslims at that site. 
The second account we have is by an Austrian, a Jesuit Austrian, who lived in India for several decades. And he also toured that region and he wrote a most detailed account. His account is particularly valuable because he says that the Hindus have created a Bedi. Bedi means cradle, cradle for a newborn. So he says that they have created a Bedi or a cradle at that site and on Ram Nomi, which is the year, which is the day of Ram's birth, many, many thousands of people come there, do parikrama, pray and leave. So these two eyewitness accounts do not mention the performance of namaz at that site. And these two accounts were very, very instrumental in deciding which way the verdict on Ayodhya will go. There are uh, two other accounts that I would like to mention. The destruction of Mathura uh, in the course of Mahmud Ghaznavi's invasion, ninth invasion, was recorded by his historian Utbi. Now, the temple was destroyed, maybe constructed, reconstructed on a small scale, whatever some form of that temple uh, was uh, built and it served as a place of worship till the time of Akbar. Then we have a, a Portuguese father, Antonio Montserrat. And he was one of the Jesuits who, visit, who was at Akbar's court. He visited Mathura in 1580 82 and he said all the temples were in ruins and only one temple was there and crowds come from all over India. Now, in the time of Jahangir, there was a local ruler who helped Jahangir in a critical period in his life. So he was given permission to build. Krishna temple at Mathura. That temple was seen by two Frenchmen. These are the last eyewitness accounts that we have of that temple, Bernier and Tavernier. Bernier saw it in 1663 and Tavernier saw it in 1650. So these two very valuable accounts of that Krishna temple and then it was ordered to be destroyed by Aurangzeb in 1669. That destruction has been recorded by Saki Mustaid Khan, which is also available. And I want to mention one German traveler to Ahmedabad. This German traveler came in 1638 and he visited Ahmedabad. The leading dweller in Ahmedabad was a Jain named Shantidas. He used to supply jewels even to the Mughal court. He had built a beautiful temple in Ahmedabad city. This German was the last eyewitness. Uh, the, his account is the last eyewitness account 
we have of that grand temple and then of course it was destroyed so in the medieval period we have so many narratives running simultaneously we have narratives as i told you of vijayanagar then we have what's happening in the north then the mughal empire comes and we have these streams and we have so much economic activity going on and we have side activity of temple destruction also alongside so there's a vast amount of writing on all aspects of indian history in that period which i can only just mention and in the last segment i want to uh, discuss some of the writings on india in the colonial period and uh, the british when they begin uh, to rule over india when they become responsible for the uh, government of india they begin to move out of the cities and go to the small towns and villages and what they observe is something which surprised them they realized that large sections of the population had bypassed the state administrative machinery for, as far as their daily lives were concerned so if they wanted redressal if they wanted dispute settlement local issues they tried to settle within their community and these colonial historians these colonial officials they were surprised that the indigenous systems of redress had survived and were intact and were working and were delivering all these centuries and they mention one or two which i'll just mention one is they say that one form of redress is dharna dharna they say that if you are a aggrieved party and somebody has done you injustice you want redressal from that person so what do you do the native would take a dagger or some poison and go in, in front of that person and sit there and threaten to kill himself if he was not given justice so this was something that they found really very strange and very effective they wrote a lot about the village community how it was uh, catering to the needs of every section of society and they also wrote a lot about the panchayats they said the panchayat system was the most effective system in delivering justice to as many people as possible in a cost effective manner and to conclude i will uh, just give you an account of a report that was written uh in uh bellary in 1823 this person was he was the collector he was asked to prepare a report on the state of education and the report that he gave was really very interesting he said that the class the school is divided into particular number of classes the senior boys are given the responsibility of 
looking after or educating the junior boys and the headmaster keeps a check on the whole school. And they said, unlike in Europe, the students never begin by reciting the alphabet. They begin by writing the alphabet on sand. And when they have learned writing the alphabet, then they are given you know, paper, etc., to write. And he said this was such a great system. And this system was actually taken from India and taken to England. And it is known as the monitorial or the Madras system. So uh, I just want to say that um, there is a lot of material for anyone interested in the time that was given to me, I tried to compress as much as possible. Thank you so much for the patient hearing and thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Meenakshi ji. That was really wonderful presentation and we appreciate uh, all your research that you have done and presentation you put together. Um, we have a couple of questions. So I'll start with one since I'm the host here. Um, <laughs> A lot of people, when we talk about uh, foreign travelers account, they say, oh, you know, the word Hindu or Hindustan was used in this time or that time. Do you have any, uh, any idea when the first time Hindu or something similar was used? No, it was used by the Persians several centuries before the common era. And it was Sindhu, it becomes Hindu, Hindu, and the Chinese use the word Hindu. In Chinese writings, before common era, you'll use, you'll find the word Hindu. In Persian writings, you'll find Sindhu becoming Hindu. Mm -hmm. It was named after the river Indus for them. Right. So, so it's a very uh, a, uh, ancient term. Yeah, so it's not a medieval term that when the the Islamic invasion happened, that's when they started talking about it, right? It came from the word Indus. Yes. So we find it first in the Persian writings and in the Chinese writings, it's called Hindu. Okay. Nishan, do you have any questions? Or Ram? Um, I have a question. I mean, actually, I, I, uh, I happened to read the, the first two uh, volumes of the India They Saw series. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, first one was Sandhya Jayanji and the second one was yeah. from you. So, it's actually um, an anthology, you know, that whatever right. you subject that interests you, pick up that portion. Uh, and right, right. So I was, um, I was actually reading it and was fascinated by uh, some of the stuff. Uh, so for example, you were talking about women, you know, and how women were, uh, so in, in the Greek writings, I mean, maybe you can elaborate a little bit. So in the Greek writings, they talk about women being, uh, studying actively with, with men. Yes. And then uh, uh, Alexander's witnesses of women's valor when one, he orders uh, women to be, I mean, he attacks a camp uh, yeah. of uh, Indians to be destroyed. The women actually go in and fight side by side the men. So uh, can you- And you know, Get yep. any Indian image, murti, right. Right. you never find the woman wield. Right. The face is always shown. Right. So, you know, uh, this, I mean, that the women, uh, this impression that people have got that it was, you know, patriarchy, etc., it doesn't actually fit in what we have. 
because I was telling about this uh, Italian nobleman who saw women rulers in the south. And he was so impressed by the way they conducted themselves. So this is a very colonial kind of uh, construct, you know, that women were oppressed. You know, this whole myth of Sati that has been created. I have a book on that. Um, the other, uh, and, and I'm just, I'm, because I'm, I read the books uh, yeah. relatively, uh, you know, uh, like probably last month or so, it's, so it's, everything is fresh in my mind. So I, I, I was surprised to know that uh, there was a, uh, when uh, um, Fahen, I think, or Huyen San, he, one, of, one, of the, one of them actually may, uh, sees witnesses at Rath Yatra uh, yes. in, in yeah. Hoten. Which is in the Aksai Chin, or not above Aksai Chin right now, yes. in Zhenjiang. And he notices, he witnesses that Rath Yatra, and then he comes all the way to Patliputra, and then he, yes. he witnesses yes. the same thing again. Yes, yes, absolutely. And what they write about Lumbini, the birthplace of Buddha, is also very, very fascinating. Right. Um, and then the other thing that we were talking about education. So, I the first thing, I mean, the, the thing that I fascinated again something in the book was about the children's education yes. and what they were what they were taught at that time so they were taught like the five five vidyas right the shabda vidya the shilpasthana uh, vidya chikitsa vidya hetu vidya adhyatma vidya so again uh, and, this uh, is you know, yes and then you know uh, when the in the colonial period uh, the british asked william adams to prepare a state or a survey of village education. So he prepared three reports and he said there was no section of society that was denied education. You know, every section was given education according to what they felt was necessary for that person. And he makes a very interesting point that Zamindars in Bengal were very particular that their daughters should get education because they said, you know, that if she gets married and the husband passes away, she has to be able to understand the finances and to safeguard her heritage. So he makes this point that Zamindas were very keen that their daughters should get education in mathematics, accounts, etc. Ram, do you have any questions? Uh, there is one comment from Kiran. Have, uh, have any of you read my latest book, Flight of Deities? I have not, but I have heard your presentation. Okay. Yes. Okay. I have it, Minakshiji, with me. I am planning to read it pretty soon. I, I'm just on the, I've completed two volumes, so I'm going to be. Actually, uh, this is, you know, uh, work which has not been attempted before. You know, because we, whatever has been said is that, you know, temples were destroyed. And I also used to, think, you know, just hear that and, for me, that was the end of the matter. Temples were destroyed. Okay. But then it occurred to me that the temples were such huge structures. They could not be destroyed in a day. So it was possible to save the murti. If your house is under attack, you will run away with whatever is most precious in that house for you. Then I started examining and the kind, the wealth of evidence that is there Obviously, I couldn't collect all of it, but each district has stories of how the priest or the devotees ran away with the image and what effort it took to 
safeguard and protect that image it speaks volumes for the you know the spiritual spirituality the deep spirituality of ordinary people mm -hmm. which is something that you know uh, which has not been uh, given its due accord and at some point uh, i think that there has been attempt to break that link between the devotee and his heritage right i think uh, you were mentioning a story where the priest brings the murti back and then takes it back uh, when the in, uh, invasion yes. starts and he puts it in his head and walks all the way and reestablishes there the are so many such stories that yeah. you know in uh, in uh, the vallabh sampraday that was one of the sampradays of uh, krishna devotees you know their images were very small so the temple servants hid the images in their turbans and ran away wow. in many places the images were buried in the temple and the place of burial was known only to a few in some places people were running they took them with on their camel back so it is i can't think of any other civilization which has this incredible story of not just one temple thousands of temples the story is repeated in thousands of temples the method of saving is different according depending on the situation and uh, uh, from from personally i believe that even the the destruction of temples was not just iconoclasm or just destruct destroying the deity it's actually destroying the entire economy that surrounded by the temple so you know if you destroy the temple I Is yeah, that is I, that true? Is that true, Minakshi? I think at that time they were really not worried about the you know the right. surrounding. They were just right. for them it was iconoclasm. Okay, okay. Um, they, there is were, a destroying the surrounding economy and all that. They were. You see, the point is. Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, some years ago, the Bamiyan Buddhas were destroyed. Right. So there was no ecology around it. They were just standing there. Right. and they were not they were not even in that sense in active worship right but still they were destroyed um we have a question that's uh, from saurabh brower is there any criticism of indian society in pre medieval foreign accounts do you did you uh, any uh, i cannot think immediately of criticism Okay. because you no know, at that time india had a very unique place in the world and they came to learn actually so you know like the chinese they came to study buddhism to get buddhist texts i uh, the criticism and all uh, you know it's there in the medieval period because there is a uh, not adequate appreciation of the civil in the early accounts of the arabs there is appreciation and they regard india as the source of wisdom uh, but there is a hardening of stance in the 10th 11th centuries and then after that it is very critical if they if they write about it they are critical otherwise they don't bother mm -hmm. and definitely it picks up uh, uh, you know during colonial period indology But but the early Britishers, 
they were also full of admiration for India. Mm -hmm. It is only when they suddenly realize that we are becoming the rulers of this whole country, then how can we appreciate this country if we are rulers? Then why, what are we doing here? So we have to say that we have for a mission. So the attitude changes when they become the paramount power. Ram, do you have any question while we parse at the other questions that are coming in? So there's only one question that I want to relay, actually. I think uh, it's uh, from uh, FB. Uh, there was a question, I think, from user Kiran. Kiran, I think, is from Chicago. He, he was asking this question, madam. How can we access uh, the research? Is there an archive that could be used by the common man? Archives for the common man? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's very very it's very difficult, uh, you know, because archives are not uh, accessible easily even to scholars. It's a very very difficult process, and they've got millions of documents. You don't know what you're to look for, and it's a very very cumbersome process. I don't think archives are easily accessible, but what is accessible is public libraries which have a lot of holdings and which can be easily accessed by the lay person. But archives, I cannot think. Thank you. Well, um, if we don't have any more questions, uh, we'll bring this session to end. And uh, once again, thank you, Meenakshi Ji. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yes. And thank you, Namaskar Meenakshi Ji. to all of you. Namaskar to all of you. Thank you so much for organizing this. Thank, thank you, Madam. Thank you. I'm sure thank we'll you. meet again. Yes. Namaskar. Namaskar.